Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Hebrews 10, 19 through 39 is where we're going to be today. Last week, I think we went into 22. We're going to back up. Um, And so that's what we're going to start. Last week, we concluded the author's multi-chapter argument that Jesus is superior to everything. That's what the author of Hebrews was doing from chapter one all the way up to the beginning of chapter 10. He's arguing that it doesn't matter what you throw up as your, like, most treasured possession, Christ, is a greater treasure than that. That's the argument of the first 10 chapters. And then last week, he began the transition into the next half of that. The argument is now over. He's not making any more arguments that Jesus is superior. Now he transitions in his letter to help the church understand what are you supposed to do with that. If Christ is indeed treasured above all other things, then what does your life look like if that's true? If you stop wanting and treasuring and lusting after the things of this world, if you, if you really, really let that go and you fix your eyes on Christ and, and he is enough, he is the most treasured thing, what does your life look like? That's where we're headed today. So in order to get there, we're gonna start in 19. If you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews 10, verse 19. I am reading this morning from the ESV translation. It is not the only translation. There are lots of other really good translations. There are some bad translations. If you wanna know which one's good and bad, you should sign up for Curtis's class. Unfortunately, you probably missed today's class, so you'll just have to wait a year and a half from now when it comes back. No, we recorded it, we'll put it up. Um, But just so you know, uh, so if you're using an app and you wanna read along, you can follow along there, but we'll also put it up on the screen. So Hebrews 10, we're gonna start in verse 19. It says, therefore, now that word is important because it's connecting all of the arguments previously with some application that we're supposed to reflect on now. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now let's pause there before we continue and reflect on what the author is doing. That word therefore in 19 is connecting the previous argument, which is Jesus superior to everything. What do we do with it? The author leverages all of the imagery from the previous two chapters to make his appeal. What do we do with the reality that Jesus is superior? Well, we use the imagery that we have been given in the Old Testament to frame our mind into what we're supposed to be doing. So this idea that there is a tabernacle and there is furniture, he uses this to encourage the church to do something. There is a better holy place 
than the current one that was existing on planet Earth when this letter was written. There is a better holy place in heaven, and so the encouragement is to press towards that reality. What reality? The reality that you're not gonna be living on this earth forever. You're, you're coming to a place, like you're, you, everybody in here has an expiration date. Nobody's gonna live forever. There will come a point at which your body expires, you will die. What's next? The author is compelling us to live in such a way that that next thing is what we should be living for. Stop living for the things that you see, this temporary stuff that's just gonna be blown away by the next news cycle tomorrow. All that stuff that seems so important now, it won't be important tomorrow. But there is one thing that is important that won't ever get blown away. That's the thing you start living for, that new temple, that new presence. So God, press forward to those things that matter. So he says there's this idea of a heavenly place, let's move towards it. There's also this idea of a veil. For the Old Testament folks, for those who were living at this time, there was a tabernacle or a temple still uh, living, uh, and when Jesus died, the, the, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped in half. I assume they repaired it and they kept going, just business as usual. But the author of Hebrews says that imagery, I want you to use that to think about how we're entering into that eternal holy place of God's presence. That veil's not made of cloth anymore. That veil is his uh, very own flesh. That's how you move into the presence of God, through Jesus. He's the one who made the way. And he also leverages this idea that there's these vessels of worship. And we've talked about, even last week and the week before, that these vessels were sprinkled with blood. Once, the first time, when Moses consecrated the tabernacle, but also yearly during the Day of Atonement sacrifices. Everything was sprinkled with this blood. It was covered with this blood of the sacrifice. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, I, I want you to take that imagery and I want you to consider that now you are the vessels you are the pieces of furniture in God's house, so to speak. And your hearts have been sprinkled with his blood in the same way that those pieces of furniture were sprinkled with the blood of animals. And so he's taking all of the imagery from the previous chapters to help frame out what we're supposed to be doing, which is simply an invitation to press into God's family because you are now clean, you are whole. And the idea for this church that he's writing the letter to and the idea to us as a church is that this reality is what we should cling to, that we should go back to, that we should meditate on because it is the source of our very identity. You don't have an identity rooted in this world. You have been born again and given a new identity. And so every moment that you rely back on that old identity that was given to your dad or given to you by your mom or given to you by your school or given to you by how much money you have in the bank account or given to you by some, the color of your skin or by the, by, by the way that your hair looks or, or whether you have a beard or not have a beard, it, 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 it doesn't matter what in this world you 
root your identity in. The invitation that Jesus is giving to you is to forsake that identity, be born again, and receive a completely brand new, better identity. That's not rooted in what you were born into the first time, but it's rooted in what you were born into the second time. We were born again, and that born again means you now have a new identity. And this new identity is just laced with wonderful imagery. There's tabernacles, there's priesthoods, there's blood being sprinkled on things, there's forgiveness, there's law being written on your heart. There is no shortage of metaphors and imagery to help you understand your new identity so you don't need to go read it in some book that is on the New York Times bestseller list. You follow? This is, it is a radical way that the author is framing this argument for the early church in Hebrews and it's kind of fascinating the way that it applies today. Because our world today looks more like Rome than probably any other time in history. And so while this letter is 2,000 years old, it is very applicable. The idea that you can forsake what has been given to you by this world that shapes the very who you are and the way you think that you can forsake that, turn your back on that, and inherit a completely new heavenly way of seeing yourself and where you're headed, it's life-changing. The problem is that for this church and for many in the church today, that's not how we see it. They see it as a thing that has to work alongside of this other identity. And that sometimes they're warring with each other but there's no sense that the old identity dies, so this new identity is the one that we take on. What's being taught mostly today is that you can have your cake and eat it too. You can keep your old man and invite this new man and both of them can live in harmony together inside your heart. And who wins? Well, whoever wins is whoever you feel like winning. There's no sense of surrender or putting to death something. There is only taking on more things. And this is what the author of Hebrews is tackling today. The invitation to become a Christian, to come and follow Jesus, is an invitation to die, not to put more things in your backpack. So what he does here is he starts he starts this, um, an application process, if you will. If the idea is to let go of your old identity and surrender to this new identity that treasures Christ above all other things and inherit all these things that heaven wants to impart into you as a new born again believer, then practically, what's some of the first stuff that's gonna start looking different in your life? Like, let's just talk, Brass tacks, what, like give me something. Do I, start, do I start talking differently? What do I do with my time? And he introduces something that should look different if you treasure Jesus above all other things and some of you are not gonna like it. But just remember, this isn't my conjuring up of what it should look like to be a believer. 
These are not my thoughts. And these are not just thoughts that the author of Hebrews wrote into the book. I want you to read this text we're about to get into as if God breathed it. God is using the author to speak directly to you today through this chapter, okay? Because you're gonna read this like, I don't know if I agree with that. I just wanna remind you, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you don't agree with this. What matters is that you look at this and you treasure it as Christ's words and you treasure it in such a way that it has importance to consider in your very own life and something should be done about it. Are you ready? All right, let's get into it. goes verse 24. Now remember, the author is a pastor and he's writing a letter to this congregation and the issue with this congregation is that they're shrinking back, they're drifting in their faith and the author has spent 10 chapters treasuring Jesus and now it's time for him to start addressing this drift. What is, what is the first thing that should look different in your life? What is the first thing that you should start looking at? Well, it's what you do with your time. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is one of the first things that starts changing in your heart when you're born again? There should be a desire to start being among other people who are also born again. Regularly. And conversely, because he's going to set this up in 25, 26 as a contrast. We'll get there in a, minute, uh, in a moment. But essentially what he's saying is one of the first things that happens in your life when you get saved is a, a desire is cultivated inside of you to start being among other people who are also regenerated. But if that desire is gone, if you don't have that desire, or if you get saved and you let that desire to start kind of drifting out of you to the point where I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to be around other Christians. Other Christians annoy me and bother me. When we get together, the preacher talks too long. They sing songs I don't like. It's too cold in the building or it's too hot in the building. This church that I go to has so many tall people, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter where I sit, I can't see anything. You see these temptations inside of you. That one hit kind of close to home, didn't it? (laughs) These temptations inside of you, they argue for a case to, well, I can still believe and follow Jesus and, and not be a part of that thing. I don't have to go to church. The author of Hebrews is saying that is one of the first signs of drift. In this congregation specifically, and it's true not just in this congregation, but one of the first signs of spiritual drift that he wants to address is this habit that people are developing to skip church. Now, the reasons, I gave you a couple silly ones, some of them 
were real reasons in this church. They weren't complaining about the temperature in the room. They decided to stop going to church because of persecution. If I go to church, people will see me going to this crazy new thing, and then they'll stop coming to my store, and that's my livelihood. And if people don't come and buy pita from my shop because they saw me going to church, like I can't feed my family, so I'm just not gonna go. Real, real persecution. If they see me going to church, they might arrest me. They might arrest my wife or my kids while they're at school, and so I'm just gonna avoid it. I'm gonna skip it. Some reasons might be persecution. Some reasons might be fear. I'm, I'm literally afraid of what might happen to me if I go to church. Have you seen what's been going on in the news? If I go to church, a gunman might show up. If I go to church, I might not come back. In other parts of the world, if I decide to take my family to church, we might not make it home. Real fear, and there's other reasons too. Convenience. I don't want to go to church. I'm gonna skip because it's more convenient to skip. My bed is so comfortable. There's just no good churches in my town. I get fed better by listening to podcasts. Isn't watching the video stream, the live stream of the service, the same thing as being there? No, it's not. And this is what the author of Hebrews is tackling. Whatever the reason is for the people of this church to start developing a habit of skipping church, he wants these people to know that that is dangerous. When you buy into the lie that the weekly gathering is not necessary for you, you are headed down a dangerous path. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to this church, and that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. Now, everyone, you're here. So what does this have to do with you? Well, this isn't one of those things that may be immediately applicable, but if you're honest with yourself, this is something that the enemy loves tempting you with, either in the past or sometime in the future. Look, let's be honest. There is no shortage of reasons to just stay home because it's a hassle. But here's, here's the thing. The beauty is in the hassle. There's a reason why he has lawyers and doctors and academics sitting next to artists and musicians. There's a reason why through his mercy we don't sing your favorite song every week. There's a reason why teaching the word of God we just can't do it in 20 minutes and call it a day. When the people of God gather together, a couple of really important things happen. The first thing that we're told is that gathering together stirs us to love. Now that word is the Greek word agape. 
And so what he's saying is that when we gather together regularly as a church, our affections are stirred for things that we are not naturally affectionate towards. When we get together as a people, the Holy Spirit has a way of changing the things that you love and that you want that wouldn't happen if you decided to skip. The sheer fact of getting together with other people who have set their affections on Christ challenge us in such a way to ask, have I set my affections on Christ the way that this brother that I'm sitting next to has? Because I, I, when I shake his hand and we start talking, the stuff he wants to talk about, that's not the stuff that I want to talk about. He wants, to, he wants to talk about the word of God. He wants to talk. Every time I see him, he asks me, man, what's God doing in your life? Well, I don't know what to say to this guy. It'd be so much easier if I just skipped and avoided all of that. But that inconvenience, it spurs us towards changing our affections. The Holy Spirit, through the work of gathering together, starts shifting and changing the things that you really love. And he replaces your affections through the gathering of his people. Another thing that it does is it stirs us to good works. It gets our minds off of self. It helps you to stop thinking about what profits you most, and it widens your view to what the kingdom of God is up to and not what you're up to. That's the beauty of of gathering together. It stirs you to love, it stirs you to good works, but it also stirs us to encouragement. Meaning that what we're doing right here is a reflection of eternity. This, the gathering of God's people, is what our eternity is gonna look like. The rest of your eternity, after you die and you raise from the dead, will be described as a forever gathering of his people with him. And so in a sense, what we're doing is practicing for eternity. What we're doing is reminding our souls that the most important thing is not you and what you think and what you feel and where you live and what you drive and what you do. The most important thing is what God is up to and what he's doing in the lives of his people and the ways that he's doing those things in his people. But the other thing that gathering does is it reminds us that virtue isn't always spontaneous. Now think about that for a moment. In our society, we are convinced that the way we show love and the way that we're kind is the spontaneous acts of helping a person who says they're in need or or just responding to whatever may come our way. And what that does is it trains us as people to only be reactionary and only respond to things that come our way. Well, Well, what happens if things never come your way? then you're robbed of the maturity or the opportunity to grow in maturity when it comes to things like love and virtue. You're never presented with an opportunity to grow in it and therefore you don't ever grow in it. So what does the regular gathering of God's people do? It reminds us that the growing of virtue, that the exercising of love and stirring to good works isn't something that's exclusively spontaneous. It's something that's regular, it's practiced, it has to be a habit. 
If you're going to grow in this, you have to make a conscious effort to grow in this. It has to be on your calendar. You have to decide that this is a thing that you're going to work on perfecting and give it some energy and not just say, well, I'll, I'll, whenever the opportunity presents itself. Because here's what happens. It's kind of like your diet. If you don't make a decision and plan ahead, what kind of food do you usually default to? The most convenient food. Not the most healthy food. Not the food that takes some time to cook and season. It's the stuff you can get the fastest. And so if you don't practice and build it into your regular routine, all you're ever doing is reacting and grabbing the fastest, most convenient thing that you can find, and it's gonna rob you of growing and developing. And what that does is not just rob you of growing and developing, as the author is about to introduce to us in verse 26, it also develops different habits. So while there is an invitation from the word of God to gather as a people to develop good habits, to grow in spurring one another to love and good works, if you don't do that, you will automatically default to growing in other unhealthy habits. Let's look at those, let's go to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's interesting that he would set that verse right after 25. He says there's a habit of some but we should draw near, we should draw together uh, all the more as the day is drawing near, verse 26. For if we go on sinning, that word for in Greek is, can also be translated because. It's a word that connects those two thoughts in the author's mind. There is a straight line to be drawn between attending church and practicing sin. If this isn't a regular habit in your life, then there will be another regular habit in your life. But if a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which it was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he also again said, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So in the author's mind, if you aren't practicing virtue, you're practicing sin. So what he's saying is that gathering together as a people isn't just a nice thing to do, it's practice. It's something you've got to regularly schedule and participate in, and if you skip practice, then you drift backwards. If you don't hone the craft, if you don't go to practice, if you don't regularly practice virtue, love, good works, encouragement, worship, if that isn't a regular component of your Christian life, the author is telling us that the natural response 
is backsliding. Now, these two things are set against each other, and they're probably not the kind of thing that you would expect to set against each other. You're probably looking at this and you're thinking, well, like, I'm not gonna sin if I don't go to church. Like, I don't, I'm not, I don't see how those are connected. Just because I don't go to this organized thing that man has constructed doesn't necessarily mean that I'm just gonna fall back into sin. Well, two things. Number one, he's talking about not going to the people of God, the gathering church. He's talking about not going to that as a regular, regular habitual practice. He's not saying that if you just, if you go on vacation and you miss a Sunday, boom, sin, sin town, you're there. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying like, oh, oh you're sick. I, I, can't, I can't go to, I can't stay home because if I, if I stay home, I'm gonna go into sin. That, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that there is a regular practice in your heart of just making the decision, I don't need that. The author is saying, if that's where your heart is, if you decide to start regularly skipping church, and it doesn't matter what the excuse is, if that's where your heart is, you will inevitably fall back into sin. And again, you're, you're pushing back at me like, well, I don't know about that. Just because I don't, you know, I haven't gone to church in like three years. Maybe somebody listening to this on the recording, like, oh, I disagree with you. Here's my response. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't care. It doesn't matter that you disagree. It doesn't matter that you don't see it. It doesn't matter that you can't draw the line between the importance of this thing, and if you don't do this thing, then you're falling back into sin. I would also argue that the fact that you can't draw the line is evidence in and of itself. The fact that you can't hear the word, the fact that you're literally reading it and seeing the connections that he's making, you're like, well, I don't know about that. You're in a dangerous spot. Here's my advice, go to church. Find the smallest, closest church to your house, go there for three months, listen to the teaching, make sure it's not apostate teaching, make sure that it's actual solid biblical teaching, and put your roots down, and if, and if it is, then do the next thing, move to the next closest, smallest church and listen to the teaching, and watch the lives of the people, and, and inspect the fruit. But for us today, the encouragement is to understand the value of what we're doing today. We aren't just getting together, and you're hearing a sermon, and listening to some music, and going home and saying, well, that was another good one. Hope it's a killer next week. No, if that's your mindset, if you treat church like another one of your hobbies or a thing that you sign up for or some social club that you feel obligated to be a part of, you are missing 99% of what Christ is offering you in the community of his family. You are being robbed if that's what you see church as. So this is why he sets these two things against each other because he wants us to take these things seriously. 
It doesn't matter if you can't see it or if you don't take it seriously. The idea that the author would set these two together, the idea of practicing sin and the idea of practicing coming together, are to, there are these two things that you draw a line together, draw a line towards. And if we start making a habit of avoiding the one, then we will inevitably drift back into this other one. And then the author, towards 28, 29, doubles down on his warning. He says, you know, I spent a lot of time in this letter explaining to you the steep punishment for those who ignored Moses. If you ignored the law and ignored Moses, there was a steep punishment. If you had conscious sin, you made the decision, you knew when you did it that you were sinning against the Lord, and you did it anyway. There was extreme punishment for you. You were kicked out of the family. We kicked you out. You're gone. There's no covering for that. There's only cutting off for that. If the steep punishment in, under the law of Moses, if it was that serious, then how much more do you think the repercussions of treating the new covenant that way if the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. If Jesus is superior to Moses and the new covenant is superior to the old covenant and there were these repercussions and these judgments under the old covenant, how much more do you think the repercussions under the New Testament and the new covenant need to be taken seriously? Because we have a God that we know will judge the nations for their wickedness, but we also have a God that we know will judge his own people for their rebellion. And you really do not want to be on the other side of that righteous judgment. That verse, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That verse is a verse that the Holy Spirit filled with fire and started the first great awakening in, in this country. The reality that a people could treat the things of God in such a way that, that they don't matter, they're not important, they're not for me. That reality, when preached by Jonathan Edwards, it seized the hearts of the people. It seized the hearts of the author, or the audience that was reading this letter from the author of Hebrews. It seized the hearts of Americans in the 1700s, and I'm praying that it seizes our hearts today, that we stop pretending like this thing that we're doing doesn't really matter. We, we, we kind of know, we think that it matters, but we don't live like it matters. We don't read this word like it matters. We don't arrange our lives like it matters. Serving, showing up, participating in something as simple as the weekly gathering isn't very high on our scale of importance. Now you're saying, well, it's easy for you to say you're the pastor. That's kind of your whole gig. Isn't that what you do? Like, of course, that's got to be important for you. Well, yeah. But he's not talking just to me. He's not saying, pastor, Take the Sunday morning gathering seriously. He's saying, Christians, of which I'm counted one among, start taking this weekly thing that you call church seriously. Stop getting hung up on stuff that doesn't matter and focus in on why you are here and it ain't for you. I told you this is gonna be a tough one today. 
he, he transitions here in verse 32. And he says, I want you to look back on your old life before you began to skip church and drift. Go to verse 32. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew you yourselves had better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So what is the medicine for a heart that is convinced it doesn't need the things that God says it needs? or that it could do the things that God commands in a different way that God commands. What's the medicine for that? The medicine for that is to look back on your life when you first got saved. Look back at a time in your life where you practiced virtue regularly. When you partnered with those who lost and those who had lost things and those who were imprisoned. I want you to think back on your zeal and the way that the plundering of your possessions meant really nothing to you because Christ was your greatest treasure. And nobody could scare you with anything because you treasured Christ more than everything. And having too much wasn't dangerous to you because none of that stuff you treasured more than Christ. And having nothing, the fear of that, meant nothing because there's nothing that you could own that you treasured more than Christ. Look back on that first moment when you had your eyes open and, and you, you woke up and you felt like you were sleeping for your whole life and then finally everything started making sense. And look back on your bold confidence, this idea that it didn't matter what was happening around you, you had a reward waiting for you and that was far superior than anything this world had to offer. And so the business of the day meant less and less and less. And the stuff you used to care about meant, means less and less and less. And the stuff that you give your heart to, it starts falling away and then eventually, there's only one real treasure left. The author of Hebrews says, if you want to start addressing the issue that's rooted in what we say, I don't, I don't wanna go to the gathering, and for whatever reason, I don't wanna get together with the people of God. Whatever the reason is, the root of that is, I want my way and not your way. That's what that is. And it doesn't matter what the excuse is, it always boils down to the same thing. God, you commanded this, I don't want that. And so I'm gonna try and fulfill the command a different way. I'm gonna satisfy my conscience by just listening to the thing online. I'm not gonna submit myself to others, brothers and sisters, and I'm not gonna come in and, and force myself to sing songs that, mm, I don't know about that one. 
I'm going to force myself to listen to a message that's 40 minutes long. Oh, that seems so long. 50 minutes? Oh my, we're preaching to Isaiah, I'd preach an hour. Oh my gosh, that's so long. Except for the fact that you'll watch Top Gun Maverick and that was like three hours long. <laughs> and you'll sit and you'll binge a Netflix show, six, seven, eight episodes. I finished a whole season in one night. It's all about, okay, like... Let's be honest with ourselves. Like, you're not that righteous. It's not like, oh, it's just so hard. Well, listening to some 40-minute sermons are very difficult. I'll give you that. But the idea that we have these convictions inside of ourselves that like, we're right and everybody else is wrong. No, that kind of stuff gets, gets smoothed off in the presence of the gathering. When you get among other people, you're like, man, maybe I wasn't right on that thing. Maybe this isn't the worst thing that could happen. Maybe I need this. Maybe I need to slow down. Maybe I need more of this. Maybe this is just an invitation to go and read and feast for myself. So the author is saying, you remember what it was like when you first got saved? When you sold it all, when you were zealous for God? Your old sin habits, your old ways, they stopped eroding you. Well, you've left that stuff drift. You've forgotten where you came from. And so that old stuff starts creeping back in again. That stuff that didn't matter once, where you didn't want it anymore because you only wanted him. All of a sudden, you, you took your eyes off for a moment and, and it caught your eye. And you're like, man, I do kind of want that. I, I do also want you, but I kind of want that thing too. And then it started, but it's not enough because then you find a way to get that thing and then you realize that it wasn't enough and you got to get the next thing. And you gotta, get, you gotta get more of that thing. And then pretty soon, well, this, this would be even better if I had this other thing that went along with this thing. And then pretty soon, all you're doing is just stockpiling stuff the world wants to sell you, and you don't treasure him anymore. And you're never around other people that are reminding you how wonderful it is to forsake this world and treasure him and him alone. Or you find a group of believers who only treasure this world and only kinda treasure Jesus. And so no one's challenging you. And so you found a loophole. You, you are going to a gathering, but it's not a real gathering of God's people. It's a gathering of secularized versions of his people. People that look like Christians on the outside, but, but, but they're Pharisees. They're, they're either legalistic or they just let anything go. They're whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones, nothing on the inside, but they look pretty and they stand and they sing and they all look nice and they're loving to everybody, but you're never challenged. You're never called to repent. No one ever looks you in the eye and says, brother, you're sinning. That is sin and you got to repent from it. Turn to Jesus. He's better than that. No, no, no. You need to stop having that affair. Not man, just follow your heart. Fall in love with whoever you want to. The idea that gathering together challenges us and it reminds us of where we came from and where we started is essential to starting to come off of this high that we're right and we don't need the things that God's offering us. And he sums up this going back and reminding ourselves of what it was once like with one word. You know what you need? Endurance. You're giving up too easily. You're arguing the wrong case too strongly. You're elevating yourself too high. You need endurance in the old good stuff. 
Let's go and finish this. Verse 36. You have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's now quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He's quoting Habakkuk there. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Endurance is the cornerstone for God's people. And it has always been this way. So you've got, so, so here's, here's Hebrews 10. We've got 10 chapters of argumentation that Jesus is superior to all. So what do you do with that? One of the first things you do is you start gathering with other people who also share those values. And if you don't, you'll start drifting back in your faith and you'll go back to the old ways. And one of the best ways to fix that drift is to remember what it was like when you first got saved. Remember what it was like when you first started valuing the things of God's kingdom and not your own way and your own feelings and your own preferences. And so once that remembering pulls your heart back towards the people of God and the way that God does things, once that that reflection on God's old ways of doing things starts ruminating in your soul. When it pulls you back in, how do you fix yourself from drifting back again? You focus on this thing called endurance. And it's this thing that has always been a cornerstone of God's people. And the author makes that case plain when he cites two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 26, 20 and Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. He's talking that in the Old Testament, God's people were waiting on the coming Messiah. Well, guess what? We are also God's people, and we are still waiting on his return. He came once, he ascended into heaven, and we're promised that he's going to return again. So in both periods, under the old covenant and the new covenant, you've got God's people waiting on his return. It is a middle period where we're waiting for things to happen. Some things are very true and some things are already, but not yet. There's this anticipation that, man, it could be tomorrow, it could be 10 years from now, but we're waiting, we're anticipating. This is not new for the church. God's people have always been living this way. And in living this way, it frames how we're supposed to think about things. The author is leaning on these two messages because we have always been a people of waiting. We're waiting on the second coming. But then there's this verse 39. It's fascinating because it's a sharp reminder of their identity. It's almost like he says, look, among this church, there are some people who are doing this and there's some people who are moving this way and I want them to pull back into the fold. I want them to live with encouragement. But I wanna speak generally over us. What kind of people are we? He says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve in their souls. We are not those who shrink back. We are not those who skip church. We are not those who are destined for destruction because we fall back into sin because we're convinced we can do God's ways outside of how he's told them to do them. But we're counted among those who believe. We're counted among those who are called the people of faith. 
Now that last verse is gonna springboard us into 11 next week because the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 is nothing more than a collection of God's people throughout the ages living by faith. But that last verse, man, there's so much power in it. I remember sitting across the table from a young man. His marriage wasn't going well and he had convinced himself that the only way to solve this problem was to get a divorce. And he wanted to meet with me. I don't know what he, I don't know what he thought he was gonna get out of it, but. <laughs> he sits down and he makes his case. And he, he's arguing for it. There's no infidelity, he hasn't abused his wife, his wife has been faithful, they're just not getting along. And he's convinced there's only one way, there's only, there, this is the best way, and he's just making the case, like, like I'm gonna say, man, you, that is an excellent case. You should go get a divorce. And I listened to his argument at the very end. He kind of gave me that, well, what do you think? Look. And I said, look, man, I don't, know, I don't know any other way to tell you this, but we don't get divorced. We're Christians. We don't do that. Now, I'm not dumb, I, I understand many of you in this place, you've been divorced, I, I, and for different reasons, I, I understand. I'm simply speaking from the posture that the author of Hebrews is speaking, that people of faith have a certain way that they do things. And that is the posture we're supposed to keep. Christians go to church. Christians surrender to one another. Christians repent of sinful behavior. They don't glorify it. They don't put a fresh coat of paint on it. They turn from it. There are things that Christians do that make us Christians. We believe that Jesus is the only sacrifice sufficient to cover our sins, not Jesus plus two other things that we have to do to keep our accounts square. There are certain ways that we live, there are certain practices that we have. And I remember sitting across from this guy and he was convinced I'm the exception to the rule. And all I had for him was look man, we are people of faith, and that's just not what we do. And that is the same reality that is rooted in this last verse of 39. I mean, think about it. He's made this amazing argument. What's the first thing you're supposed to do if you start becoming a believer? You're supposed to gather together as a church. That's a pretty low bar, if you ask me. Just go to church. Is that it? Well, no, it's not it, but that is a great first start. Go to church. But if we say, like, I can't even clear that lowest bar, that's not for me, the author's pretty clear. You're gonna drift back into that old life. And you're gonna start making excuses for yourself. And you're gonna start saying that this sin is okay. And, and then God doesn't really consider this an issue in my own life. It's an issue in this person's life, but he knows my heart. And the author says, no, no, come back, and here's how I want you to come back. Think about what it was like when you first got saved. Think about all the things that you treasured and the way your life was. 
and now you've drifted from that. And, and in anticipation, the person's like, okay, I want to start coming back. I, like, like I, I hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I, 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 I'm following you. I'm listening. Okay, now that you're back, I want you to reside in, 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 um, in endurance. I, I don't want you to drift again. I want you to, to stay firm. We're always looking towards this thing. We're not drifting back. And at the very end, he says, I've got one sharp thing to say to you. You're Christians, and you don't do that anymore. It's like a loving father that, that, that in, in a loving way is like, man, I love you. That's a bad decision. Come on back. Come back to the family. And, and, and his loving kindness pulls the child back, and the child's like, okay, okay, I'm back. And it's like, okay, let's have some endurance so we don't do those kind of stupid things again. And the child's like, okay, yeah, that was stupid. I won't do this again. And, and then the father looks straight in his eyes, just like the pastor of Hebrews is looking straight in the eyes of the church, just like I'm looking straight at you today, and I'm telling you, we are people of faith. We'll get into this next week, but this is the last thing I want you to, to, to kind of be on your mind as you leave this place. You are people of faith. You are not people of science. You are not people of evidence. You are not people of experience. You are not people of feelings. You are not people of education. You are not people of money. You are not people of prestige or people of wealth. You are not people of, of, of experience. You are people of faith. And that uniquely frames how you're supposed to live, what you do with your lives, how you talk, and how you spend your time. Guys, you are not like those who drift. You are those who fix their eyes on Jesus and treasure him above all other things. You are people of faith. So the next time something comes your way and like, I don't know about that. I don't know how it's gonna, I don't, I don't. It doesn't matter if you don't know. It doesn't matter. That doesn't weigh in the equation. You stop talking like that. You stop saying, well, I'm afraid I have to do this if I don't. In parenting, like if I don't do this with my kid, I'm afraid of what might happen. No, 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 that's not how we do things. You don't parent out of fear. Fear not, for I am with you. You don't live, you don't work out of anxiety. That's not who we are. We are people of faith. There are things that you can't see that you're grabbing hold on that are just as real as the things you can't see. And so for those who are drifting, come back. And for those who are back, hold fast onto endurance. But for all of us, this is your core identity. You are counted among thousands of years of people who uprooted their homes because God said, move to this land. You are counted among thousands of generations of people who were fed to lions and tossed into fire because they said, if you don't bow down to our system, and they said, doesn't matter. I've got a better system. We are people of faith. I can't wait to explore that with you next week. On that, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.